If you will, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 22. Um, I did a little research, it was actually last week, to find out if we really had crossed the largest consecutive sermon series in the history of my pastorate. (laughs) And it is true that we are indeed in that series. Uh, This is sermon number 106 in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Genesis came in second with 78 sermons, I think it was. Um, John, Acts, we've done some other long uh, series, but we're 106 and we're just in in, in chapter 22. This could be truly record-breaking for all time. The parable of the wedding feast uh, is where we are as we, as we pick up. Uh, this is, uh, and to me, this is a, it's a bad place for a chapter break, as we've been talking about. The, ch- the authority of Jesus has been challenged, um, beginning with Matthew 21 and coming into the city of Jerusalem and what we call the triumphal entry, uh, the cursing of the fig tree, and then the true challenging of His authority. By what authority, uh, by, by whose authority do you do these things? Uh, and, and Jesus engages them. He doesn't really dodge the answer. It looks like he does. But then he starts telling them parables. Um, Because they weren't man enough uh, to talk about John the Baptist's ministry. Was it from heaven or was it from the earth? Uh, He said, well, neither will I tell you exactly where my ministry and where my authority comes from. But hey, listen to this. i got three stories for you. And he begins to tell them three parables in a row that's answering the questioning of his authority. And by whose authority? He has indeed come and does these things. And so we saw the first parable in the parable of the two sons, the second parable in that of the wicked tenants, and now the third parable. It's, it is truly, he's like got him by the shirt collar and saying, do you hear me? Three stories now, three parables, and now the parable of the wedding feast. Sermon number 106. Y'all are doing so good. 106. That is persevering. Stand with me out of respect for God's word. Matthew 22, 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. So go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to, the, to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. You may be seated.
Oh Lord, we ask that you bless now the reading and the preaching of your word, that you would come by your spirit, illuminate our minds, speak to our hearts, empower us and equip us, Lord, to change in accordance with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Weddings were a big deal in the first century. Weddings are a big deal in the 21st century. Um, <laughs> amen. Oh, the most recent experience of weddings. But especially a royal wedding. Um, for us, the experience of, of royal weddings, we have to watch on TV. And we usually watch a royal wedding as it's done in Great Britain or in one of the uh, English uh, in the English Commonwealth or that or the like. But I, I got some numbers for you. I went and looked up a few things because Prince Charles, now King Charles, Prince Charles and Diana's wedding, uh, as far as a royal wedding, was supposed to be and was really the greatest wedding event uh, that we have known in our time, July 29th, 1981. Uh, I, I, I type in, how many guests did they have? 3,500 guests. How many people watched it on TV? 75 million people in 74 different countries watched the royal wedding. And so I went forward to Prince William and Kate, 1,900 guests, 36.7 million watched. But here's the interesting thing. You'd have thought that, that those numbers would be bigger than what I'm about to show you or, or tell you. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, 600 guests within the church, 2,000 more guests were on the grounds. Their, their wedding list was 2,000 people. Two billion people watched that wedding uh, streamed worldwide. Now, can you imagine if you were living in England and you had received a wedding invitation to just one of those three royal weddings and you did not go? We would change our schedule. We would take off work. Uh, we would buy new clothes. If you, were, uh, um, if you were a woman, you would get your hair done. You'd get your nails done. <laughs> You'd pick out your gift with great care. You would arrive early and you would stay late. You'd take lots of pictures because it would be a day to be remembered for the rest of your life. What an honor, what a privilege, what a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be at a royal wedding. And so the parable we have before us in the wedding feast, people do just what we would find to be so shocking. And so as Jesus tells the parable, it's just as shocking to them to think that somebody wouldn't go to the king's wedding for his son. It would be shocking. But yet people do just that in the parable. The kingdom of God, or he says the kingdom of heaven, is, is compared to coming to the marriage feast of the king's son. And this is not the only place where, where this imagery is used. Uh, if you go to the end of the New Testament, into the book of Revelation, chapter 19, in verse 6, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude with the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and, and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. 
It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And then notice this is, this is verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a blessing to be invited. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. As we study our passage this morning in Matthew 22, we're going to see that all are invited into the kingdom. That's the picture. The kingdom of heaven is like, or should be compared to, a marriage feast, right? All are invited into the kingdom, but we enter only on His terms. All are invited into the kingdom, we enter only on His terms, and the God's kingdom invitation is a patient invitation, it's a particular invitation, and it is a powerful invitation. So let's begin by looking at a patient invitation, because I do think the, the, maybe the, the, of, the, of all the emphasis that are before us here, the patience of God is meant to be stressed. The parable is an allegory. The king, we would say, is God the Father. The son, who's having the wedding feast, is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The feast, we would say, is the marriage supper of the Lamb, which I just described for you out of Revelation 19, that is between Christ and His church. The servants who take the invitations out are, first of all, we would say the prophets that eventually culminate in John the Baptist, who were heralding the coming of, of the Messiah. And then eventually is going to even be the apostles themselves. The first group of invitees are the Jewish people. And the second group of invitees that actually come will be Jew and Gentile, outcasts, sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, as we saw last week, the poor, the undesirable, the second group. John 1, verse 11, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, as we read the parable together just a few minutes ago, you should have noticed the repeated word for invite or invited. Four different times in those 14 verses is invite. This is about an invitation to the royal wedding and to the royal wedding feast. It would be a great insult to refuse the invitation to a royal wedding. He invites the first group two times. Uh, today it would be like maybe you've received a wedding invitation from someone. First of all, it's a save the date card, right? Uh, and then somewhere on the save the date card says invitation to follow. But save the date because the wedding's going to happen. That's your first invitation. And then the real invitation comes a little bit later on. That's the second invitation. Well, they get two invites, we might say, like that in their own day and time. It would be dishonoring to the king, to the son, and even to the servants who carry the king's message to refuse... Because the invitation is almost like a royal summons. Despite their initial refusals, 
The king does not get angry, but patiently sends the servants again. Notice there in verse 4, again he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come, come to the wedding feast. Maybe they've changed their minds. Maybe their situation has changed. But we should certainly see here the initial invitation, save the date, and now the real invitation. Come, everything's ready. It is the mercy and grace of God. The king patiently desires their presence. Uh, this is mirrored for us in other passages in the Old and New Testament. You think, first of all, of 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that you will be thrown out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is that aspect here in the parable. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would reach repentance. If we move back into the Old Testament, Ezekiel 18, 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, but rather that he should turn from his way and live? And later on in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And then he says, So turn back, turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why would you die, O house of Israel? That is a patient, repeated summons, right? And so the king sends out his messengers a second time. And this time they mistreat, it says, and even kill some of the servants. We, we saw that in the previous parable of the wicked tenants. He kept sending out these, these servants to collect the fruit from the vineyard. At first they just sort of disrespect them and then later they start to beat them and eventually they start to kill them and, and then he will send his son and they even kill his son. Now the shock factor of this parable is what we might say is the insane, willful refusals of the invitation to the wedding feast. It is crazy to think that you would say no. To a king's wedding. You got invited. You were on the 3500 list. You were on the 600 list. You were on the 1700 list. Whatever it was, out of all the people in England, you got an invite. Would you truly say no or would you say, I'll just take off of work that day and I think I'll go? What an honor. The two attitudes that are reflected here in their refusal is, first of all, an attitude of indifference. Well, I've got other things I could do. Everyday things I could do rather than go. And that turns into an act of hostility. I want you to notice it was not that they could not come. There wasn't a physical impediment. It wasn't that they didn't have a ride. It wasn't that they were out of the country and it was too far away to get there in time. Um, it wasn't that they didn't have legs and they couldn't walk there. That they needed to be carried. It wasn't that they were sick and had to stay at home. It wasn't some other type of providential impediment to being there. Which, of course, everyone would have understood. 
is that they would not come. It's not that they could not, it's that they would not. They did not want to come, which is a question of our own moral choices. And it's the same today. The refusal to come to the kingdom of God is a willful moral choice. They do not want to come. They respond indifferently and then violently. They seize and mistreat and kill the messengers. We see that particularly as people go out uh, into uh, hostile lands, missionaries and the like. We know, all of, we know those stories. One writer said this, if they feel this way about the servants, then they feel the same, if not worse, toward the king and his son. They would mistreat and kill him if given the chance. And that is indeed what we saw in Matthew 21, 33 to 46. The tenant farmers beat, kill, and stone the owner's servants, and then they murder his son. Listen to what Stephen says. As, as Stephen had gone out as one of the, uh, the seven, and had, had they had dispersed, you know, and they're, they're preaching the gospel and the like, and in Acts 7, 52 and 53, they've been taken in by the, he's been taken in by the Jewish authorities, and Stephen says the same thing to them. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. Their refusal is a rejection of the authority of the king. As we mentioned, this is a, a continuous narrative as we go through this with these three different parables. They despise the king and his son, and they would rather do anything than go to the wedding. That is the point. They've got the invitation. They even get the second invitation, and they truly they would rather do anything else that they could possibly do than go to the wedding. And that should be shocking to you. But the parallel is true in the spiritual realm today with the offer of the gospel to come to the kingdom and its king who is Christ. People would do anything than come. They don't want to come. That's the lesson that we've got to see. It says some went off to their farm. Others go off to do their business. Indifference to the wedding invitation. In a very similar parable, even though it's not in relationship to a, a king and a king's wedding of his son, but it's in relation to another, a great feast in Luke 14, uh, 15 to 24. It actually gives some of their excuses for why they would not come to the great feast that was being planned. And it shows that they simply don't care to come. He says, one says, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Well, could you not do that tomorrow? Certainly you could. The other says, I have, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I must go to examine them. Can't you do that tomorrow? Yes, you could. Another says, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Well, is not she invited as well? Certainly she is, if you are. Each of these excuses are trifling and lame. And many today who refuse the gospel have equally lame excuses they are too busy. 
They have jobs or obligations. Or they just have other things to do. Just other things. Charles Spurgeon preached this parable, I think, seven times through his ministry. In one of his sermons on this, he tells of a, of a rich ship owner there in England who was visited by a Christian man and was asked, he said, well, sir, what is the state of your soul? And the merchant replied, soul? I have no time to take care of my soul. I have, I have enough to do just taking care of my ships and my business. And then Spurgeon says this, but he was not too busy to die, which he did about a week later. That's a sobering thought, is it not? And so is this you? You have to pause and ask this question. Is this you? Are you too busy? Are you too preoccupied? Are you too selfish? With whatever it is that you want to do, because just about anything is more important than attending the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Notice Jesus says that those who reject the invitation there in verse 8, He says the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. What made them not worthy? Uh, their character? Their sins? No. What made them not worthy? The refusal of the invitation is what made them not worthy. And so the king must now respond with force for their willful insubordination and rebellion. So not only do we see God's patience here, we also see that there is a limit to God's patience. We saw that last week as well as you just scan over back into Matthew 21 and look at verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants who have killed his servants and now killed even his own son? What will he do? He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him fruits in their season. And Jesus says, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And this is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And so in our parable, we see that he sends his army to destroy them and to burn their city, which is what would have been done with an insubordinate group of people within the kingdom. The burning of the city, we would say, really represents and points to two things. We had, we had seen last week in our previous parable the, 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 the idea of the 70 A.D. destruction of Jerusalem and the judgment of God which comes. The fig tree is cursed and the judgment is coming because they rejected the Messiah. They rejected the Christ. And so certainly the burning of the city has to do with the burning of Jerusalem that will happen even within this, this generation's time. But I think also we must fast forward and see it in a big picture because the destruction of Jerusalem is a microcosm of the last judgment and the final day here on the earth. And it's interesting that the great marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, as we've already read, now pick, I want you to pick up with verse 11 to 16 of, of this 
marriage supper description. In Revelation 19, it says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is in regard to the wedding feast, right? His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and on the name is written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is, he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh has, has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel coming coming in the sun and with a loud voice and called all the birds that fly directly overhead. It says, come and gather to the great supper of God. And so the marriage feast of the Lamb has another aspect of the supper, which is a judgment. The great supper of God, verse 18, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who, is in, the, who in his presence had done signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and the birds were gorged with their flesh." Pretty graphic. This marriage feast that has a coupled judgment. Matthew 22, Revelation 19. But God's plan for a great wedding will not be thwarted. So he invites others, we find. Go out into the highways and byways, into the hedges and the crossroads. And if you look again at the uh, similar parable in Luke 14, he says, compel them to come in. Compel them, persuade them that this is a good thing. If they need convincing, convince them. But come, come to the marriage feast. This is the free offer of the gospel. The free offer of the gospel that goes out to all. In our parable, in verse 9 and 10, it says, As many as you can find, gather all, whom, whether they're good or bad, meaning they would be acceptable in the eyes of the Jews, or they would not be acceptable in the eyes of the Jews. It doesn't matter. Invite them all. Fill my wedding banquet with guests. Isaiah 45, verse 22. This free offer of the gospel is not something new in the New Testament. It's in the Old as well. Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. All are invited into the kingdom, but we enter only on His terms. God's kingdom invitation we've seen is a patient invitation, but His patience has a limit. Now we're going to see that it's also a particular invitation. And by particular, I mean that we enter only on His conditions, only on His terms. Do you come in to the wedding, and to the feast. Everyone is welcome, provided they wear the wedding clothes. To not wear the right clothes in the wedding ceremony of their day would have been a deliberate insult to the king. And quite often it would be like white robes they would wear. 
representing joy and happiness and cleanness and good fortune in the future and put on your, your wedding garment and come into the wedding. Uh, to, today it would be like this. Maybe some of you have seen this before. It's a real swanky restaurant and they, they require formal attire. But you show up, guys, and you don't have a jacket or a tie and they open up a closet over there and they've got, a, they've got, they've got jackets with everybody's size and a tie for everybody to wear. Because they don't want you to go away because you didn't bring the right clothes. We'll give you a jacket and a tie. Enjoy your meal, sir. That's the way it would be. No way should you miss out on this wedding feast. I've got the wedding garments right here. Just put them on. Those are my rules. Those are my conditions. Those are my terms. Now, what is the wedding garment is a good question. And I think biblically we can answer that in two ways. But the second way stems from the first. And so only by having the first does the second become an option. And so truly, the wedding garment we should see is the righteousness of Christ. To be clothed in His right standing with God. His perfect obedience to the will of God. His, his sinlessness. To be clothed with Christ. And we see a good description of that again in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, in verse 9. He says, After this I looked, and behold, again, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. It's a sevenfold description. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me, John, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know, which is John saying, well, I don't know. Why don't you tell me? And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their clothes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Covered with the blood of Christ. This righteousness of Christ is provided freely to all who repent and trust in Christ for their salvation. So this guest that we have here who decided not to put on the wedding clothes at the wedding feast, he decided not to wear what was offered to him. It wasn't that he didn't have it. He was offered it and he refused it. He wanted to keep his own clothes on, which represents his own righteousness. He does not think that he needs or he does not think that he has any want for the righteousness of Christ. And this too would be remarkably insulting to the king and to the son and to the wedding guest. And so in Isaiah 64, verse 6, it tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags, like, like a minstrel cloth, polluted garment, some of your versions will say, your righteousness. And so come on into the wedding wearing that, by the way, and think it's going to be okay. It's not. In Zechariah 3, we get another story of being clothed in the right garments 
And then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And so in Isaiah, it's, a, it's like a, a minstrel cloth. But here it's, a, it's, it's garments uh, smeared with dung. And he's standing there. Representing his sin, his iniquity. He's nasty. And the angel said, who was standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now the second option for the wedding clothes comes from the passage we've already read in Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8, when it speaks of the, the bride making herself ready for the great wedding of the Lamb. And it says, it says, I've granted her, I have granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright. And he says, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And you shouldn't see any, any, any conflict there because faith in Christ receives the blood of redemption in Christ. You are washed and you are forgiven. And a true faith always works itself out in front of others, right? It demonstrates its genuineness. And so if you've got the righteousness of Christ, then the deeds of the saints naturally follow. We're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. But our faith alone is a faith that works. And so when the man was questioned in our parable why he did not have on the wedding garments, notice he was absolutely speechless. Great emphasis, I think, is placed on the man's own responsibility and guilt. He had no excuse. And so it is when someone stands before God, they will have no excuse. And he is bound and thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a representation of scripturally of hell to come to the great wedding feast the great marriage supper of the Lamb of God and His bride you must come on His terms you must be clothed in His righteousness which is received by faith alone so all are invited into the kingdom but we enter only on His terms God's kingdom invitation is a patient invitation. It's a particular invitation, but it is also a very powerful invitation. And this is where I'm going here. It's the very last verse, verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Yeesh, right. After all this has occurred, this, this, these invitations have gone out twice and been rejected another invitation has gone out and finally it's been accepted and then when you gather this room full of guests one guy standing there in the wrong clothes he gets kicked out and you think man the king has got his hands full with these people right what would happen if he would have not been able to find anybody who would come what if he had gone out the third time and the fourth time and nobody comes? What then? 
Is it possible that God, the sovereign, omnipotent, all-powerful king of the universe, could be dishonored by having no one at the wedding supper of his son? Is this even possible? Can the will of Almighty God be defeated by the will of sinful, rebellious man? Think for a moment. Who, in the end, accepts the gospel invitation? Who in the end goes to heaven, the wedding feast, the supper? It's believers, right? It's the redeemed. Could Jesus come, live, die, be resurrected in vain? Could nobody in the end, potentially, possibly, be saved? And, and nobody's at the wedding feast? Is that even an option? If he does all this and no one accepts the gospel invitation through faith in his completed work, would he, the king and the son, not be dishonored? Would we, as we apply it scripturally, would not Satan then have won? Would not the demons, one writer says, have taunted and say, he saved himself, but he could not save his own? And well, I think this is the reason why the last phrase is included in our parable in verse 14. It is absolutely impossible that the wedding feast is not filled to the maximum. It's absolutely impossible. Because many are called and few are chosen. For many are invited, some of your versions will say, but few are chosen. And the word therefore chosen is elected. Eklektoi. Plural, elect. And so this parable drips with the doctrine of election. All who hear the gospel are invited to the kingdom of God, but those who refuse to come and the guests who accept but refuse to wear the wedding garments do not belong with the ones who have been chosen. Who are the chosen? How do I know if I'm among the elect? Would be a natural question to ask, right? Well, the parable answers it for us. Those who accept the invitation and put on the wedding garments means you've been chosen. It means you are elect. Romans 10, 13 tells us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Come to me all the ends of the earth and you will be saved. And John 6, 37 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out because he invited you to come. So certainly he's not going to turn you away. Unless you come without the righteousness of Christ. Right? You come in your own righteousness. John 6, 39, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. Joel Beakey, who I hope all of you come in here tonight, uh, said this, I, don't, I wrote it down probably at the last class I was in. There are no empty chairs in heaven. Think about that for a moment. There are no empty chairs. How can that be? The elect are there. You think, man, the king's got it 
his hands full and, and he's dealing with these rebellious, willful, sinful, moral choices, but yet the wedding is full. And his will will not be thwarted. Because in the end, he is sovereign. In the end, he is in control. Many are called. And the highways and byways and the hedges and the, the great and the least, the good and the bad. But few are chosen. There are no excuses for being left out of the marriage feast. All are invited. All are desired to come. And all who accept the invitation are welcome. But you must come in the wedding garments provided, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So do you desire to come to the wedding feast? All are invited. But you must come on His terms. Have you already accepted this invitation? Are you looking forward to the great feast in heaven? Do you say with the Apostle John at the end of Revelation, Come, Lord Jesus, wrap it up. Well, we've been given a, a great picture of this great marriage feast of the Lamb in its symbols and in all of its smallness before us. This little bit of wine or a little bit of grape juice and this little bit of bread is supposed to give you a foretaste. It's supposed to, to give you a great longing to be at the marriage feast which Jesus says, I will not drink of this cup of this fruit of the vine until I drink it with you new in heaven. And so until he comes again, we celebrate this feast, this meal, in its symbols, so that we would look forward to the big one. So do you look forward to it? Do you want to come? If so, then this table now is for you. If you are not a Christian, if you have not trusted Christ as your Lord and your Savior, if you've not come to Him, if you haven't accepted the invitation, this table is not for you, not yet. Accept the invitation today and be ready for the little feast so that you'll be ready for the big feast. That's what we have before us. Let the picture speak. Let the gospel of the blood of Christ and His body, His cross, His righteousness, let it speak to you. And come, we, we know from our own uh, readings in 1 Corinthians 11 how uh, we come in a worthy manner. It's the same thing. The guests who, came, who didn't come were not worthy because they didn't accept the invitation. What makes you worthy to come to this table is that you come in faith and in repentance. That makes you worthy. And so come, disciples of Christ, those who have professed their faith in Him, come and be strengthened and be nourished, spiritually speaking, by His body and His blood. Come in a worthy manner, repentant of your known sin, and feed upon Him. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, as we come to the table now, Lord, we thank You for the picture that we have, that we can see now with our eyes, we can touch with our hands, we can taste with our lips, we can smell it with our nose, we hear it with our ears, Lord. We hear the invitation of come, Come and be fed. And so, Lord, we pray that our souls, that our faith now would be fed in these symbols and these signs, and that as we feed upon these things outwardly, Lord, you would be increasing our faith in the coming of Christ again and the great marriage supper of the Lamb that we indeed want to celebrate with you in heaven. 
Feed us now, O Lord, we pray. Amen.